I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 26, The King of Elfland's Daughter by Lord Dunsany. My name is Jeff, and with me to my left is the Elfin Hoy. More troll-like. <laughs> and uh, to my right here is our special guest to guide us beyond the fields that we know, Judge Andrew Sternick. Hey guys, thanks for having me. It's awesome having you on here, Andrew. So I want to start by saying it's really cool having the three of you guys in the room here. This is I feel like this is the core of the DCC NYC meetup group. You know, I, I started the Dungeon Call Classics New York meetup group back in uh, the August before last. So it's about a year and a half ago now. And Andrew was there at the was it the very first game you were there. Yes, you're at the very first game and have easily been the person who's attended the most number of games um, other than myself or maybe even including myself. I'm not sure. Uh, and Hoy was at the first or second book club and has been at the games right. since then as well. Every book club. Missed about four or five games, but yeah. Yeah. So so it's fun having all three of us in one room recording this. Um, but anyways, Andrew, um, it's awesome having you on specifically to discuss this book. Uh, what was your, let's start off by what was your introduction to role-playing games? Well, I, I, I made a friend at summer camp uh, in 1980 uh, who introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I rapidly became obsessed. I, I played Moldvay Basic moved on to AD&D into my teens. Um, and around uh, age 16, I took a short break from RPGs in general, uh, 21 years uh, of, of time off. Uh, <laughs> came back in my late 30s, uh, met some people who, who played 3-5, and realized, hey, this is just as much fun as when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, play 3-5 and Pathfinder. Got a little frustrated with um, the complexity of those systems mm-hmm. and did some reading about the OSR discovered DCC and the roots of DCC in Appendix N and, and got really excited about it. Um, and then eventually uh, was grousing to my wife that I had nobody to play DCC with, and she said, get on the internet, you idiot. Uh, and I met an obsessive named Jeff Goad, uh, and, and here we are. And here we are. And were you aware of Appendix N when you were playing D&D in the first, the first time around? I was aware of it as, as a part of the appendices of both Moldvay and AD&D. Um, and there were some books that I had read from Appendix N, but I didn't approach it systematically at all. Uh, but when I read about DCC and how Joseph Goodman approached Appendix N as source material to inspire the game, I became really interested and I started to attempt a more systematic reading. I do try to keep up with you guys. Um, I can't always get there. <laughs> and was The King of Elfland's Daughter discovered on the first go-around or the second go-around for you? The King of Elfland's Daughter is, is recent. It's within, it was within the last year. Uh, I've only had a time to read it maybe five or seven times. <laughs> <laughs> so Hoy and I have only read this book once. And in fact, uh, normally, normally by the time we're sitting in the recording studio together, I will have finished the book a few weeks ago. I will be on to the next book that we're reading for the next episode. But Hoy and I both only finished this 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 book this morning. Right. That's my normal no- modus operandi, but this is very <laughs> unusual for Jeff. So. It's very unusual for me. Um, but the, the copy that I have in my hands is the 1969 Ballantine Adult Fantasy First Printing. 
And I'm ashamed to say, we all know that I, I, I highlight these things and I write in them. But also, when I first got this, it was in pretty decent shape, and it's battered and starting to fall apart now. So it's 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 pretty it's pretty shocking what I do to these gorgeous objects. But um, but yeah, and it's got this gorgeous Bob Pepper cover, mm -hmm. and on it we've got um, Orion, and he's hanging out with his sword, and the hounds are tackling down the unicorn. Unicorns. You know, I deface these beautiful objects much like Orion uh, defaces the, the, the once majestic unicorn. <laughs> I think the hunting is, is a sort of an appreciation of the unicorn in a strange sort of way. It's a very old sensibility. Sure. That's what I got from the hunting. Yes, yes. And we'll definitely discuss that because I, I have a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts on that. That would be fun to explore. Uh, um, Hoy, oh, actually, both of you guys are reading the same one, it looks like. Mm -hmm. Tell yeah. me about it, one of you. <laughs> uh, we have the Delray Impact trade paperback from 1999. And it's got either, either Waterhouse or um, John Everett Millay painting on the cover. I'm not sure which, which of them it is. So it's sort of pre-Raphaelite. Um, it's got a Neil Gaiman introduction, and I think they're using the same version for the, if you can't find this, you can maybe find the Gallant's um, Fantasy Masterworks series, and it has a very similar cover. Yeah, Alverick is armored uh, on the cover, which I, I never imagined was not described in, in, in the, the book when he actually meets Lirazel. Mm. Though he does defeat four armored enemies. So That's true. We can imagine that. Yeah, and my book actually has a Lynn Carter introduction. So when we get to the library, it'll be interesting to kind of chat a little bit about our introductions. But real quick before we do that, let's head on over to our Hygaxian word of the day. Lucency. Lucency. And lucency is the quality or state of glowing with light. And you can find lucency on page 14. And it says, Know then that in Elfland are colors more deep than there are in our fields. And the very air there glows with a deep, with so deep a lucency that all things seen there have something of the look of our trees and flowers in June reflected in water. It's a gorgeous passage. I feel like it really beautifully encapsulates the experience of reading King of Elfland's Daughter. And Andrew, you also had a word you wanted to throw into the mix. Yes, there's a lot of repetition in this book. And I, th I say that in a positive way, uh, in description of landscape, and in particular Elfland. Um, Dunsany mentions the tarns of Elfland, mm. and I had to look that one up. It is a small mountain lake. Ooh. The, the landscape in this book emerges as, it's, it's the spine of the book in many ways, the, the, uh, the agriculture of, of the Valley of Earl, mm -hmm. that kind of medieval uh, localism about the landscape, and the way Dunsany describes uh, uh, flowers, trees, um, the, the farmsteads, is so rich, and it, it reminds us, I think, of something we've lost, which yeah. is a connection to nature. That's very cool, and I think that's a great transition into the library. So uh, speaking of the prose, yeah, what did you guys think of the way that the, the story was written? Oh, this is, uh, for pure pure prose, it's probably up there with, uh, I don't know, Clark Ashton Smith or Tolkien in terms of what we've read so far. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely sort of poetic, borderline stream of consciousness. Um, I think... Also, it's probably good that we came to this book at this point in our lives. I know that if I had read this when I was uh, playing D&D the first time around, I would have bounced off this book hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So. One of the things I absolutely adore are the insane run-on sentences. Fantastic. And there's actually one that's just right on page six, right on page six that I would like to share. And it says, Not like the runes that enraged the flames was the song she sang to the sword. 
she whose curses had blasted the fire till its shriveled big logs of oak crooned now a melody like a wind in summer blowing from wild wood gardens that no man tended, down valleys loved once by children, now lost to them but for dreams, a song of such memories as lurk and hide along the edges of oblivion, now flashing from beautiful years of glimpse of some golden moment, now passing swiftly out of remembrance again to go back to the shades of oblivion and leaving on the mind those faintest traces of little shining feet, which when dimly perceived by us are called regrets. <laughs> you, you know, in, inside that passage, there's something that Dunsany does over and over again in this book, and it's a, a big part of the, the narrative, which is a return to childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many places in, in this story where Dunsany mentions things from childhood drifting to us back from Elfland, mm -hmm. that, that magic of childhood. And, and I would also say that the, the story itself is very much a return to childhood, the story arc, if you follow... Um, uh, what happens to to Alvaric and Lirizel both? It's it kind of mirrors the aging of one's parents from the perspective of Orion. Uh, and at the end of the story, um, when they're reunited, um, you know, Alvaric comes back from uh, being governed by madmen, which I, I take almost as a metaphorical um, senility. And Lirizel comes back from simply being missing, which is almost a, a sort of a resurrection from Orion's perspective. And that's, I think, a part of the emotional weight of the end of this book is the, the making whole of a family that was broken up just by the vicissitudes of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautifully said. And I also think that in addition to that, it's also about the seeking an, seeking an idealized state of the, of the way that we wanted them to be and the way that we remember them to be, but the way, but, but the way that they never maybe even truly necessarily were. You know, because it's like Alvaric goes to Alfland he finds Lirazel, uh, he takes her back with him. And while they're actually in while they're actually in, in the city of Earl, is it Earl? It's Earl, I yeah, see. Yeah, thank you. In the city, when they're actually in the city of Earl, the reality of living with the daughter of the King of Elfland in this world was actually very trying to Alveric. You know, he was getting very frustrated with her. He did not understand why she wasn't learning the ways of the ways of our world and the ways of our fields. And the reality of living with her was very trying on both of them. Yeah, he, he loses his temper with her. He, he, he does. treats her badly at times. He right. does. And, then and when she's attempting to do the right thing, he misinterprets it, too, because she's, yes. you know, he thinks that she's she's still praying to these pagan deities and you know, gods and to the stars and to. Yeah. So the reality of their love affair was actually relatively short and kind of not so magical or wonderful. But then the the rest of the novel, like probably 90% of the novel, is the two of them desperately trying to reconnect with one another again because they have this idealized idea of what their relationship was like. And it's like the it's it's the quest for for being uh, of being able to find the reality of this like fantasized idealized state. I think the book is in in some ways about the reality of love and the reality of building a life together, um, as opposed to the, the, the fantasy of it. Um, and and there's, a, there's a few beautiful moments where, where Dunsany actually has characters thinking, and in particular, Alvaric at one point, when he, realize, he realizes that their love bridged the gap between Earth and Elfland, but these two places fundamentally do not fit together. He, he wonders, what of the end? And that, that comes up 
in a number of places in the book, Alverick wonders what of the end. Mm -hmm. The king of Elfland is preserving a rune for some future he can't even foresee when uh, the, it seems like he's talking about the people of Earth. It's almost uh, a metaphor for population growth, industrialization, the changes of the Earth may overpower Elfland. And he's trying to preserve this ultimate power to save Elfland from a, a disaster that he doesn't even foresee right. yet. And there's also another revelation which we don't see also in the beginning because at first we just think that the elf, king of Elfland is just not understanding humans. It's like, why do you want to mix with humans? And it's only towards almost towards the end of the book that we find out that he actually had a mortal wife, the king of Elfland at one point, yeah. and that she had eventually died of old age because she kept on crossing back over into the mortal realm. Mm -hmm. And so in the grand scheme of things, she had a long life, but for him, it was over in a day, yeah. you know? So that he is capable of, even though Elfland doesn't actually experience time as we understand, or he's even in a state of sta stasis, it's because he willed it so. Yeah. Um, to try to preserve something again that is idealized in his mind that had gone away, and he knows that that oh, what parent doesn't want better for their child, right? And so he he doesn't want Lirazel to experience what he had experienced. Yeah, and there's that great moment where um, he does get Lirazel back, and um, he's sitting there on his throne with his daughter, and his daughter is sitting on his lap, and he feels so content in that moment that he just kind of even freezes t time in a world where time is already frozen just to hold on to that contentment for a while. And in that kind of moment where they're just sitting with that content feeling, 12 years pass on, on, in, in, in the world of Earl. Mm -hmm. So much of this book is, we've come to it already, is, is love and death, really. And they drive a lot of the, the magic and the emotional power of the book. And not, not only does the, the King of Elfland, has he suffered a loss, a, a death of his wife, there's a fantastic moment in the book where the troll Lurulu is trying to convince his trolls, his friends in Elfland, to come to Earth. And there's this grizzled old troll who's warning them, no, don't go, because he had strayed to Earth too much, and he had been caught up in time and became elderly. And he's warning the trolls of tomorrow, and the trolls say, well, what happens tomorrow? So, and he says with this doomed finality, you know, what happens to the, the people of Earth? And he says they die. Uh, and and it's, 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 it's talked about as people going to this place, heaven. Um, and there's a fantastic uh, uh, turn of phrase that uh, the gates of heaven close with a golden thud. For between Elfland and heaven, there is no path, no flight, no way, and neither sends ambassador to the other. That's very cool. And for those who are listening who are envisioning kind of a very D&D &D style troll, do you want to tell us what trolls are like in The King of Elfland's Daughter? Okay, so I have, I have a, a surprising amount of knowledge about the, the movie um, Frozen. Um, if you have, if oh, you have, you're going to say the movie Troll. No, if, 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 you have, if you have daughters, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the, the trolls of Frozen are, and the trolls of Elfland are almost exact. I think that Frozen was inspired by King of Elfland's Daughter and the trolls in that movie. They are small. They are largely harmless, mainly pranksters. Um, they have difficult, difficulty keeping any serious thought in their minds for very long. So even really terrible things like death only last for a moment. Um, they have these flights of fancy. They imagine when they come to Earth and they see, I think, a, a sunrise, they think there's another elf land on the other side of, of their elf land, which is a fantastic kind of cosmological imagination that Dunsany gives us. And, and, and the, the trolls are... Um, just very whimsical um, and, and, and end up being the, the agent that brings a lot of the magic from Elfland into Earl late in the book. 
I picture them almost like, because they're always depicted as bouncing and jumping. It's almost like sort of little super balls, almost. Um, and in my like, mind... Like the Gummy Bears cartoon. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> uh, actually, visually to me, I don't know why, but it made me think of, um, you remember that strip Wormy in, in uh, yeah. Dragon Magnet? Dave Trampier's Wormy is what it made me think of. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, um, so little brown, bouncy little, you know... Um, and something a way, something about the way that they interacted with the world kind of reminded me of when I was a teenager and I would do acid. Because, <laughs> like, there are moments where they, they'll, they'll, like, see a beetle and they'll stop and, like, try to listen to, like, the beetle's language and try to figure out what it, what it, what it's saying. And just kind of the way that they interact with the world in general is very much kind of like a, a teenager on acid. <laughs> I mean, there is talk, I guess, uh, people studying, you know... Um, people's visions in the Middle Ages that a lot of people were essentially on or had ergotism, which is yeah. a pre- precursor to acid, you know, so add, eat bad bread and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> so you might, you might not be as far off the track as you think. There, there was something up that, that the trolls did that jumped out at me, which is connected to an aspect of this book that, that I think is really important to, to talk about. There's, there's a moment where, um, Luralu meets Alverick. And Luralu bows to Alverick. He does something that they call the abasement of the five points. Um, and this jumped out at me because what it is is exactly an Islamic prayer position. Um, and the first time I read it, I thought, well, that's bizarre. I just something I happen to know about. Why did Dunsany put that in there? And as I read the book a few more times, a whole bunch of things started to come out to me about this book that made me realize Dunsany was drawing upon I guess a kind of the, the British Empire and their encounter with the East. Um, you have this repetitive language uh, in, in King of Elfland's Daughter, uh, which sounds biblical, and some of it is actually like out of the Quran. And you have, um, for, for example, I, I want to I read this passage. For it is true, Alverick knew, that just as the glamour that brightens much of our lives, especially in early years, comes from rumors that reach us from Elfland by various messengers on whom be blessings and peace. That, that phrase, on whom be blessings and peace, is straight out of the Quran. And it's funny that you say that too, because one of the things that I made a note of is, is how biblical the prose can be. For example, the start of one chapter just starts with the sentence, and on that day, Orion rested his hounds. And that just, it, yeah. it, just that just sounded like the way that like a Bible King passage. James, King James, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. There, there are a lot of, of layers that make this really a premier work of what you would call Orientalism. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about Elfland itself, it's, it's kind of to the east-southeast of England. There's a vast, as when, when Elfland pulls away, there's a vast arid wasteland between the two. Mm-hmm. The King of Elfland himself is a sort of hybrid temporal spiritual ruler. Elfland exists when, when you hear the Freer talk uh, beyond salvation. The, the, the tower of the King of Elfland kind of maps to a minaret. The word of the King of Elfland kind of shakes all of Elfland. It's, it's heard everywhere. That's uh, analogous to the Muzain's call. There is actually a bit written on, on the concept of Orientalism, which is a sort of colonial view of the East in artwork, in writing. And I think King of Elfland's Daughter is really a premier work of that. And, and it, it's, it's kind of run through throughout. Uh, I would say that Dunsany sort of is reskinning the Islamic world a little bit uh, and turning it into Elfland. And that's also part of what makes this story feel so consistent. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure it's a respectful uh, depiction, being that uh, the, the trolls are, are doing this prayer, which is you know something that 
not not really a great thing to to mock in that way or, or put in those. I don't know that any of his religious uh, any of his religious explorations in this are necessarily respectful because the right. freer is also himself kind of a a useless little character. He's a he's a, he's a party pooper. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like if this were written in a different century, this 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 text might have been considered quite heretical. Right. Uh, what did you guys think of the freer and his? Right, because he's the only one man of Earl who doesn't want magic in Earl, right? And yeah, he's and he's like, clearly the he's the the stand-in for the for the Christian Church right, or and, the Catholic Church or and, something. And he's he, just, yeah, he's like curse the uh, you know curse the the trolls, curse the things that you know come from the east, and he's always going out there and standing in front of his you know priory and doing his yeah. thing. He's but like Cassandra. Right. But even in the end, he gets his own little, I mean, when we get to the book, he gets his own little, everybody ultimately sort of gets sort of what they want other than the Parliament of Earl. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. They wanted, they wanted, they, they wanted got magic more, to come they, to Earl. They got more than what they yes. wanted. Uh, but they got literally exactly what they asked for. Exactly. Which is always the issue with fairy, right? So. Uh, one of the things about the Freer and the position of, of the Christum rites, as they call it in this book, that struck me at the very end when Elfland's border washes over the Valley of Earl, that's also a, a metaphor for the historical process of the, the conflict between the Islamic world and the Christian world. And the freer and, and his, little, uh, his little chapel become like an island, like mm-hmm. an island fortress inside an Islamic sea. It's kind of like Malta or Cyprus or Rhodes, which really existed, which were uh, imperial outposts. Um, for, for the Crusades and things like that. So I yeah. think the, the metaphor in this book goes very deep. Now, one thing that's interesting about the King of Elfland's daughter, as opposed to a lot of what we've been reading in the Appendix N, is most of the Appendix N tends to be very sword and sorcery. And although we have swords and we have sorcery in this, this does not feel sword and sorcery to me. This feels very high fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think this is... Um, I don't know that... Um, for example, um, Lord of the Rings draws directly on this, but we do know that Tolkien had read Dunsany. He probably would, there probably would not have been able to avoid him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's that. I think, and obviously it's drawing on very deep traditions of, you know, the of fairy, fairy tales, um, but sort of elevated beyond the sort of tales that, I mean, Lord Dunsany was literally a noble yeah. and literally from the second oldest uh, branch of the peerage in, you know, in Ireland. So it's not the fairy tales that would have been told by like peasant women, you know, around the fireplace. Yeah. This is, Taking it, turning it into, I guess, high literature, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. right? And and with the additional layer of of it's not um, sort of commonplace everyday language, as you say, it draws on King James Bible to a certain extent, probably maybe Richard Burton's uh, translation of the Quran. If you're talking about that kind of very flowery language, um, so um, and, and Dunsany's primary concerns are very high fantasy, at least yeah. up to this point. So yes, I would definitely say high fantasy. And not sort of generic extruded high fantasy. When we nowadays, when we say high fantasy, you know, we have this sort of idea of like you know the tenth generation t- uh, Tolkien clones. This is mm-hmm. obviously a very much a pre-Tolkien clone, oh, yes. pre-Tolkien. Very much. And I can see why some people are trying to reclaim this as um, uh, you know, in the Appendix N universe. Say, okay, let's look at what elves and fairy and magic are weird and mysterious and wild and are not easy to categorize. Um, so I can see why people would come come to this book and say, "Oh, it's a you know a revelation." Um, yeah, and it was hugely, hugely influential on a lot of the people who wrote in the Appendix N. And in my uh, in my copy of the book, I've got this Lynn Carter introduction, and he mentioned something that L. Sprague de Camp said. He said Dunsany was the second writer, William Morris in the 1880s being the first to fully exploit the possibilities of heroic fantasy. 
And then also Lynn Carter uh, points out a little excerpt from a letter that H.P. Lovecraft wrote to Clark Ashton Smith. And H.P. Lovecraft said, his rich language, his cosmic point of view, his remote dream worlds, and his exquisite sense of the fantastic all appeal to me more than anything else in modern literature. So it's really clear that he, that that Lord Dunsany, the way he wrote, and also specifically King of Elson's Daughter, had a huge impact on a lot of the authors who were reading as a part of this project. I think it's interesting to think about a little bit about who Dunsany was and, and how that informed what King of Elfland's uh, daughter is. You know, he, his name, uh, his last name, Morton Drax Plunkett, is what they call a triple barrel name, uh, which was, the, the, the names were appended uh, when there was no male heir, so it was a way of preserving family lines of the British uh, aristocracy. He wrote at a time when the loss of aristocratic privilege was moving very quickly yeah. in, in Britain. Um, and, and also on the heels of the devastation of World War I and the, the loss of a whole generation, essentially, of that noble class. Yeah, it's definitely um, Downton Abbey era. Yeah, and, and, and I think a lot of that sense of trying to hold on to something that is slipping away is fed into what the King of Elfland has done to preserve Elfland. And there, there's a lot of, I think, what Dunsany's class would probably like to have done in this time. And it, it, it really gives it... Um, uh, an immediacy and an emotional weight because you can tell that the author really feels this himself. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I feel like he feels this, but he's not in a sort of reactionary way and not in sort of like, um, he understands that Daddy this is, kids and he, understands, he understands this is fantasy, you know, this yeah. is fantasy and that he's, he's expressing in the fantasy. He can't put real life in amber the way the King of Elfland wants to do. Yeah. Right? At, the, at the same time, you yeah. get that, that uh, it's a term coined by Tolkien is eucatastrophe, you know, mm -hmm. The, the, the good unraveling where instead of at the end things get really bad mm -hmm. at the end of the book things all of a sudden get really awesome yeah. and it's one of the connections and there are many between Dunsany and Tolkien um, where really things in, in, in King of Elfland's Daughter seem to just keep getting worse um, the, it, it, the nobility is essentially totally useless they do nothing when you read the book you sometimes wonder like what do these kings do right. they go Alan is literally just going through people's backyards yeah. for 12 years yeah. with a bunch they're, of crazy people they're wandering with crazy people they're, <laughs> they're hunting they're not really ruling in a, any appreciable sort of way the parliament seems to do all the thinking and it turns out not such wise thinking right. um, and it, instead of it all falling apart in the end when everyone's heart is broken and everyone is lost to each other there's this sudden turn of events where everything gets completely wonderful mm -hmm. much like Gollum slipping over the crack of doom yeah. with the, the Ring of Power, um, we have that final rune um, used and, and Earl annexed into Elfland. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned wisdom because that brings us maybe to the most interesting character who we haven't talked about, which is Zorondel, the witch, right? Because she's actually the one who's got maybe the, the biggest picture about what's going on, mm -hmm. right? So when the Parliament of Earl comes to her and says, oh, no, give us a spell to take away the magic, right? <laughs> she goes, I would sooner give you a, cell to a spell to take away bread or take away, <laughs> you know, take water. Take away water, right? air. <laughs> right. um, and uh, she's the one who ultimately has the most perspective on what's going on. And yeah. she knows, for example, that Orion, who is a half-elf, right? Orion's a half-elf, yeah. right? Is ultimately never going to be completely satisfied in the mortal world. But mm -hmm. she tries to keep him from the elf elf world as long as possible yeah um and she's creating charms and protective spells around him um she's quite fearsome but she's not malignant right and she understands sort of debts and gratitudes here alvaric i think first comes to her and sort of implied that she was infatuated with alvaric before he 
before he uh, goes into Elfland, but and that he, but she at least, um, he was respectful enough that he didn't, you know, she's, you know, here an old crone, that he didn't you know, dismiss her out of hand, so that she still has a certain love for him and for everything that comes from him, so Orion is his child, and that she was willing to do things for him because he treated her with respect, yeah. right? So I think she's a fa- fascinating character. And she's a fascinating character. Lots to, lot to draw from there. One thing that I wanted to mention um, that was referring to something you had brought up a little bit earlier, Andrew, was you were talking about um, looking at the man himself who wrote this. And I feel like oftentimes when we say things like, you know, he was a man of his era or a man of his time, oftentimes when we're saying that, people are saying that to excuse racism and misogyny and things like that. But I think, but one thing that's interesting about Lord, Lord Dunsany is I feel like something like this couldn't be written today because it's very much taken from somebody who very much was a man of his era. And one thing that I, I was that kind of tickled me and confused me when I first read the introduction was that Lynn Carter was talking about how he was a poet who loved to go hunting lions. And the idea of like a lion hunting poet in modern times just seems so bizarre to me. And maybe this is like, you know, I live in New York City. The idea of like a poet who goes out and like just like kills this like magnificent, beautiful thing uh, is very, very strange to me. It's like it's, it's just something I can't I can't really fathom. And when we were reading the, there's a chapter on unicorn hunting and the chapter is entitled A Chapter on Unicorn Hunting, which really cracked me up. Uh, but in that, like, you know, he's killing unicorns, like chopping their heads off and like walking around with them and like putting them on display. And you're right. Like it's done with, uh, it's done with admiration for the unicorn. Uh, but from a, from a contemporary perspective, it's very strange to read that. There are a lot of layers and, and the, the unicorn is kind of like a, a hook into all those pre-modern ways, that old sensibility, that if one loves an animal, one hunts it. Yeah. That that bespeaks a time when people could not conceive of nature as limited. Mm-hmm. You know, now we think, why would you shoot a lion? Why would you shoot a, <laughs> an elephant? These these animals could go extinct. Yeah. That didn't even exist in, in the time that this book was written. Right. Um, and, and and even seeing uh, the reality of the unicorn put up to a vote. Uh, by the people of Earl. <laughs> like, did it happen or not happen? We'll vote, and yeah. then that will be reality. Unicorns are not real, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah, we voted for it. Um, but it's like, I come from a family of hunters. You know, yeah. I, I grew up in Montana, and hunting is very much a big thing out there. I didn't understand it as a kid. I don't understand it now. But I know that, like, for my brother, for example, he loves hunting, and he he's not hunting because, you know, he hates elk. <laughs> he thinks they're magnificent, wonderful, amazing creatures. And I, I don't get the mindset, but that's all right. Wow. Elk is delicious, I will say that. Oh, but it's really good. Not as delicious as the uh, fabulous blood of the unicorn, as, <laughs> as Dunsany says, and a taste of that wonderful blood that the hounds get. Um, so one thing actually interesting, we're talking about modernity, it's interesting because we think of Dunsany as this like, figure from the far past, but he actually outlived H.P. Lovecraft, right? He outlived a lot of people he influenced because he only died in 1957. Yeah. Um, so he was contemporary with a lot of these people. We think of him as being like some kind of weird timeless state between the 19th and the 20th century, You're right? right? Um, so he would have seen all this going on. He saw World War One. He saw World War II. Yeah. And he saw all this stuff going on. Lynn and, Carter, who wrote this introduction, had met right. Dunsany. You and could so, say he lived through yeah. the, to- the most intense time of change in the history of the world right. so, that, that may n- not have an equal. You know, I guess other than internet, you know, I mean, he saw jet planes. He saw all that come on board, right? Yeah, you're right. So um, it's, it's fascinating in that regard. I, th- I think Dunsany probably experienced this massive sweep of history in his life, and especially as an aristocrat, living in this life of extraordinary luxury uh, in probably bucolic uh, uh, settings, all the way to total war, devastation, nuclear weapons, cold war, 
um, he probably experienced himself a sense of deep time and change. And that comes out in the book. He talks about, you know, I guess it, from the, the mouths of uh, the parliament, they say to the, the king of Elfland, the, the king of Earl, rather, whose name we never get, the first king, you know, um, for 700 years, the chiefs of your race have ruled us well. And then, and then, you know, it's 500 years since these people have spoken thus in parliament. Um, and he wasn't, uh, that's saying he wasn't just an observer, uh, which is interesting because um, we had talked about how he hunted lions, but he was a lot more than that, right? He was a chess champion, a mm. pistol champion of Ireland. He was actually, uh, I believe, a war correspondent, but anyway, he was in the Boer War and um, I think a war correspondent during World War I. Um, so he was almost an adventuring character. If oh, you will. yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, no doubt. I think maybe being a war correspondent yeah. would tend to pull him away from a swords and sorcery type of depiction because experiencing war oneself, you, you know, glamorizing and making it sound glorious is maybe not something you're as willing to do. Right. There's very yeah. little battle in this in this book. There's right. Alvarex slaying the four, four knights. Uh, the four knights. And it's actually depicted as sort of a tragedy. You see the armor that's sort of rent and then the blood slowly oozing yeah. out of the armor. Um, and so that's something that he has in common with Tolkien too, right? Tolkien had lived through World War One and is, talks about battle, but he's loath to glorify it. He he's talks about how important it is. But, yes. Yeah. But 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 yet despite that, there is an adventurer and there's an adventuring party, and they are on a quest. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite moments uh, was on page ninety six, and it says, "And away rode Alverick out of the village of Earl with his company of adventurers behind him: a moonstruck man, a madman, a lovesick lad, a shepherd boy, and a poet." So we have this like kind of, I don't know, this misfit band, yeah. exactly this misfit band of kind of potentially like crazy murder hobo characters uh, off to go on some adventure to find Elfland. Right. Party of bards. Right. <laughs> it's a party of and, bards. And um, Orion's mentors are both rangers. You know, That's true. You know, the, the two F, is it F or um, Oath? It is Threl and Oath. Threl and Oath are both, you know. Or Oth, I'm Oth. not sure. Um, and he learns at their feet. And obviously we have uh, Zerundel, who is a, a great magic user, right? Yeah, Zerundarel. Um, Zerundarel. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of things that can be drawn directly into adventure. Um, and I guess this is a good time as I need to start moving over to discussion of yeah. how this relates to gaming. No doubt. Um, so any thoughts on that, on that uh, front, Andrew? One of the things I love about this book um, is the, the, the names and the way that Dunsany makes sure to give names that have linguistic roots that have meaning. And it gives an, uh, it's not something that you might pick up consciously. I only picked it up after reading the book a few times and saying, hey, wait a minute, what do these names mean? Started to see what, are the, what do the word roots mean? I mean, Alvaric is, the, the word roots are pretty clear. Alf is elf and Veric is, you know, truth. Um, that, that, is, that is what that name means. Zerundarel, I can't, I can't place the, the second half, Durel. It, it might be from Hebrew, which is ruler, but Zerun, the, the root, is a uh, gemstone. The, the word uh, Zircon it comes from the same root. And so you'd, maybe Zerundarel is like the ruler of gemstones or ruler of earth in a way, which says something about her character, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Orion is fairly obvious. Yeah. We all know what, what Orion means. Um, and even the, the party of adventurers, their, their names, I don't recall all of the, the meanings of them, but they come from like Persian and they each have a meaning as well. And whenever I'm trying to create a, game, a gaming universe, a campaign milieu, the language matters a lot to me. Mm-hmm. What I call things matters a lot to me. And that's a part of why both Tolkien and Dunsany resonate in a way that 
I think swords and sorcery don't resonate because the writers of swords and sorcery don't have these linguistic backgrounds. Uh, they're, they're not professors of, of literature. They're not maybe as learned as Dunsany was or that Tolkien was. And that gives a world um, a, a believability that exists almost at a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, uh, Hoy and I have both played in a campaign that you were running that was inspired by, that was heavily inspired by the King of Elfland's daughter. And uh, yeah, it was very, it was, it's, it was really kind of cool seeing you kind of put that into action. Right. Yeah, it was definitely, um, what, Welsh language. Yeah, I took and... Welsh, I took Irish. Yeah. Um, and there, there, yeah, there's a resonance there. Yeah. Um, that's that's built into RPGs and built mm-hmm. into gaming. And if you if you mine it, you get. I, I have to say, it's a pretty it's a pretty inexpensive in terms of time way to give that depth to a world. Do you feel like the story told in the King of Elfland's Daughter is something that you could tell in a role playing game environment? Yes, um, and uh, eventually I will do that in my, in my <laughs> games. That, that, that's already that's already done. It's all it's all in a notebook waiting to happen. Um. Trollish Delver Games has a game called Tekendria or Tekendria. I don't know if it's based on King of Elfland's Daughter or more on his short stories. So okay. there's there's that. I know a lot of people are kind of sort of reclaiming some of his short stories, like The Gods of Pagana, to Those create sort, so of a, cool. sort of a sort of. Have uh, you read The Gods of Pagana? I have not. Oh, I've, I've read so awesome. um, The Sword of Welleran right. and a few others, and a couple of Jorkins. Right. The Jorkins, uh, you can't even get a print of that. It's it's. Right. Five hundred to a thousand bucks to get it. Right. Yeah, all I read it. is some of Gods of Bagana and this. Right. But. If you get a chance to read uh, the distressing trail, uh, tale of Thangobrin the Jeweler, that's also a proto D and D thief. Obviously, it's appendix N directly, but specifically Dunsany. I think people are attempting to not just move past sort of like the elf, the elf or elven characters are now just like um, there's no mystery in yeah. terms of a lot of like how they're presented in sort of second edition onwards of Dungeons & Dragons, maybe even for first edition, that's just sort of, you know, mildly super-powered, half-pointy ears. Um, they're not otherworldly, they're not yeah. alien, they're not even necessarily as noble as the Tolkien elves, and so there's an attempt to reclaim them, make them more uh, mysterious, more unknowable. Uh, so lately we've seen the um, DCC um, third party, they had a... Angels, demons, angels, demons, and beings between Kickstarter. We had the Elfland edition for various uh, sort of fae patrons. Um, so I think we're seeing a, a move in that direction. Yeah. And uh, obviously, this would be one of the touchstones for that, uh, along with Dunsany's shorter fiction and you know fairy tales and the like. And I want to um, a- ask you guys, and also maybe even the listeners, if you guys have any ideas about this. You know, you mentioned the the, the pointy-eared elves. Hmm. Nowhere in King of Elfland's Daughter does it mention that any of them have pointy ears. No, nowhere in and King of Elfland's Daughter does it m- mention that there's a population in, of elves in Elfland other than the king, the king of Elfland's daughter, and four knights. Right. That's also there's true. There's no elvish population whatsoever. <laughs> That's also true. That's a very <laughs> right. good point. Elves as, yes, high elves, so so to speak, right. And, and I, I don't even think re- in Tolkien they mention pointy ears. I was going to say, because I don't think that in The Hobbit or the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, I encountered any description of pointy ears. And I don't know how many elves we've encountered otherwise in our readings so far, but I also don't think that the elves in Three Hearts and Three Lions had pointy ears. No, they had uh, weird uh, pupilless eyes. They had the that's blue... right, that's right. Right. But... Where do these pointy-eared elves come from? Spock. Is, is maybe, that, yeah. Because <laughs> I, 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 I honestly don't know, and I didn't know if I, maybe I, either one of you had a sense, because I, I assumed that it came from this stuff, and now that I'm reading this stuff, or rereading Tolkien, for example, I'm discovering that it really doesn't seem to come from that. There, there may be fairies that have pointy ears and descriptions, and, you know, 
if you look back to the mythology, it's not clear the division between, at least in nor the Northern European mythology, division between elves, dwarves, yes. fairies, the dead. Mm -hmm. All these overlap, and they overlap because different, you know, things were very local. You know, there was no common uh, culture over wide geographical areas. So yeah. you had different different regions had different uh, myths that were somewhat similar, but yeah. but not exact. I mean, Lurulu is a perfect example of that. He's definitely not the Scandinavian troll, which is basically a giant, mm -hmm. right? That sort of, you know, comes out of the bogs or the forest or the caves. He's, sure. Uh, he's more like a little sort of goblin or sprite in some senses. Sure. And sometimes fairies are, are considered to be spirits yeah. and... Yeah, it's, it's very different from one place to the next. I mean, I guess one thing that's clear, at least in sort of uh, sort of post-Christian societies or post-Christianity is that they don't have souls, right, so that they can't go to heaven um, and that there is nothing, no afterlife for them. That's why they have to sort of preserve things in a constant state, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is, I guess, an ongoing theme in, um, uh, I mean, reflected in different ways, right? In Tolkien, the elves can't change, right? And here the elves can't change either, right? They, yeah. That's the, they must preserve what they have or fade away. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but from a gaming point of view, would you, you, would you think it would be very difficult, for example, to role play elves as they're depicted in here? Quite. I mean, they, yeah. they, they know nothing about our world at all. They're, they're almost uh, fresh off the boat from another dimension, essentially, mm -hmm. and which is actually an interesting role playing challenge. And I think worth, worth introducing. I agree. But not only are they fresh off the boat, they're also kind of incapable of fully ever understanding the way that we think or behave, which is something somebody fresh off the boat isn't necessarily, that's not necessarily true for them. Yeah. Right. Or as, I, as much. Right. Um, and I think also, again, we have as you mentioned Orion's half-elf, right? Mm -hmm. So, again, half-elves are really, the, I think, the, the least well-used uh, race in gaming because basically, again, it's like none of the disadvantages of elves. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then they get all the cool stuff that elves get to do. Right. In old school gaming, it's just like, oh, you can do a lot of multi-classing. Right. Uh, but here, it's quite clear that Orion's, you know, mind or soul is split. Right. He can't focus on the world that he's in. Right. Because he's always hearing the horns of Elfland. Right. Yeah. See, and for Orion, it's not even that it, it's not even that he's like biracial or something. Right. It's it's that he's his his soul and his heart and his brain are torn between two worlds. Mm -hmm. Is kind of what the state of being a half-elf is in The King of Elfland's Daughter. And that's certainly not something I've ever heard explained or explored in Dungeons & Dragons for a half-elf. Right. And I think, um, I think again, probably games like uh, DCC... Well, DCC doesn't, literally doesn't have a half-elf, so then they, they, you could really play on this if you did have a half-elf. They can say, well, you can depict your character as half-elf, but are you, you going to roll them up as a human or you can roll them up as an elf, right? And then make all those challenges for them, right? But DCC and, does literally have the King of Elfland. Does literally have the King yes. I think it's the only game, I think, right, that to the to date actually has the King of Elfland as a, as a patron. Yep. Um, if you pick up Dungeon Call Classics core book and you want to play a wizard and you roll the patron bond spell, you can start off with the King of Elfland as, like, right. your, as your boss. Right. And all elves have patrons in, uh, have patron bond in, um, right, and invoke patron. That's in, true, that's in, true. And actually, in, in, in your campaign... My, my, my wizard, Janna, she, she was serving the, the King of Elfland. There's, there's something else that Dunsany does in this book that I think has a fantastic potential at the table, um, which is the language of animals. Yes. Um, the, you know, the, the troll, uh, Lurulu, comes and he speaks to some animals. Sometimes he doesn't know their language, but he can get useful information from them. That's something that's a part of gaming, um, but is, I think, actually relatively challenging to bring to the table because as, as a judge, you have to be ready with 
what is that animal going to be able to give? Yeah. What is that animal not going to be able to give? What can a spider actually communicate yeah. to you? And actually, there's there's a game I play in. I think uh, the 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 uh, the game master is one of your former hosts on this show. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Andy Action. Oh, um, he's awesome. Where I play a beast master in in a labyrinth lord game, um, and he's he's done a brilliant job of giving me what information serves the narrative from from these animals um, whose languages I've learned. Um, and I, my, my character has this, this lizard who's kind of his pet, but not, not a pet in a go over there and do the thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a pet that, or, or, or an animal companion that, that helps drive the story forward. And the, the animals and the scenes where uh, uh, the troll, the uh, Luralu speaks to animals in King of Elfland's Daughter drives the plot forward in a useful way. Right. I think... Um... You know, and I think DCC actually is quite explicit about that because in the language uh, charts where you can roll up, you get you can get like badger and bear and all Wizard, stuff. wizards and elves can wizards and elves can. Nobody I think halflings can. can learn a few. Uh, animals. Oh, maybe. Like, yeah. Oh, I think you're right. Like I think like the burrowing mammals, right. they can. Right. So it's I think it's implicit in that. Um, again, I'm sure because again Joseph Goodman had read all the appendix and books to uh, before he created the game. That that's probably something that he might have drawn from this book specifically, or and from various fairy tales, and it's maybe something that we have not consciously chosen to use yet in our games, but it's yeah. there for us to use. Like, what does the badger know? What does, yeah. the, what does the, you know, the sparrow know? What does the lizard know, right? And I think that's a good point, because I feel like it, it's really obvious that King of Elfland's Daughter inspired a lot of the things that inspired Dungeons & Dragons. I don't know that the line from King of Elfland's Daughter to Dungeons & Dragons is as clear and as strong, but the clear of the, the line of the King of Elfland's Daughter to Dungeon Crawl Classics, I think is very strong. Right. It's right. very obvious just by flipping through the book that whoever wrote this was a big fan of, well, not, we, we know who wrote it, but, <laughs> but, but looking through it, you know that the person who wrote it was a huge fan of King of Elfland's Daughter. Much like looking into a text like King of Elfland's Daughter um, and, 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 and really, really doing a, a close reading and discovering things that are working in the background, when I look at DCC, no matter how many times I return to it, I find new things that I realize later are moving around in the background. And the thing you, you guys mentioned about the languages, I've never even thought about that. Yeah. That halflings can learn the languages of burrowing animals mm-hmm. only. But the, the roots of that are obvious. Yeah. Um, that the wizards and elves are the only ones that can learn the animal languages. You yeah. Know, that, that's, that bespeaks a very deep literary foundation to the game, mm-hmm. which is part of what gives it that magic and I think is what attracted all of us who, who have you know, have, have become so fascinated and so, so enjoy playing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously, uh, again, sort of pre-sword and sorcery. Sword and sorcery didn't really have that. I mean, Tolkien obviously has, you know, the, the eagles and various animals and Bjorn is, talks to the bears. And stuff like that. But old fairy tales, that's constantly talking animals showing up at, you know, various points in the tale to either guide or in some cases mislead the protagonists or just, you know, give them appropriate information. So I think that... Um, and it may also be reflective of, um, you know, the shift. Uh, you know, we're three of us. I mean, Jeff, you're the closest thing to someone who's come from a more rural background, but I'm a city kid all my life. You know, I know you camp, Andrew, but, you know, we're city kids, essentially. Yeah. So we, we're a little disconnected from that, so we don't necessarily automatically think of that. Yeah. So it's it's useful, then, therefore, to have in DCC or various other games these little things that pop up. And, you know, we might at first dismiss them. Say, oh, badger. Why would I ever have a character who, learns how to, who knows how to speak badger or bear, right? So, but, oh, wait, this is something I can use. He's, he's given me something. Joseph Goodman or the various authors of various games have just given me something, you know, a gift, right? 
I can choose to use it now or later, but that's a gift for me. Otherwise, I would never think of that. Okay, let me put that in, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's um, anything that, again, I think, and DCC is quite successful at sort of, um, although being a very modern system, and I don't want to make this all about DCC, but it's, sure. it's kind of primal. I right. think with this episode, it does make sense to yeah. focus more on DCC, yeah. though, because it is, in, at least in the games that I'm intimately familiar with, the one that has the most obvious connection. Right. Um, but it's, it's getting at something a little bit more primal, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, that um, as the games move farther away from first edition or even original Dungeons & Dragons, they sort of become sort of self-referential yeah. rather than referring out to greater literature, folklore, and stuff like that. And so I think one of the tendencies in the OSR has been to sort of cut away from the level of self-referentiality to kind of go back and look at it. And it's not necessarily a reactionary thing. It's just sort of getting under the hood to find out what makes this thing work. Totally. Right? And then, in your then game, if you want to have little tiny bouncing creatures and you want to call them trolls, go for it. Right. And it actually might be fun to, in your game, maybe when you're in a certain in, in a certain land, when people talk about trolls or talking about big giants that regenerate, but then in other lands that they go to, trolls are little bouncing guys. And that's just the word that they use to describe just something that's strange. Right. And that can sort of mess with your players' assumptions and then also sort of test them. So it's like, oh, a troll. We've got to go burn them and kill them. And it's like, no, no, no this, the trolls sure. are great. They come out and they bring magic out of the hills. And, <laughs> or the opposite. We're like, they're, they're used to thinking that the troll, like you, yeah. you, you tell them that trolls are these little bouncing things. And they, first, that's what they encounter. They're mm-hmm. great. And then they go to another land and they hear, that, oh, the hills are infested with trolls. You're like, oh, that's fine. That's no problem. <laughs> it, it, it goes back to the monster, not, yes. not a monster. Exactly. And you really all need to throw that out there once or twice before you completely shatter your player's preconceived notions and and I think restore that natural magic that the game is meant to have. And the same thing is true with the magic item instead of a magic item. The magic sword that Alvaric has, that, that he makes with uh, Zarundarel is really a unique item that they make together in this, like, re- I'm sorry, yeah, no, yeah, it was Alvaric. It's this unique a- item that they made together. It's not just some plus two sword that he found in a, in a treasure chest. Right, and it's a great blessing and ultimately a curse to him too because it's the thing that prevents him from being able to go back to Elfland because the, yeah. the king of Elfland can sense it and then can withdraw the borders of Elfland whenever the sword comes near. And he's unwilling to relinquish it right, either. because he thinks I might need it. And he won't finally, give up his quest nor will he give up right. his sword. And finally he does uh, go back to Zorindarel and she gives him a way to sort of mask his powers and also a way to restore his powers. But it's funny that it never, his powers never actually get restored, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a bit of a malevolent bond that he has with the sword. Right. Sure. And actually the, the description of it being created is actually quite fearsome with the lightning and standing away from the pit where the the, the slag iron is being melted and stuff like that. It's, it's very, it's actually a great scene of enchantment. That's something maybe we don't see as much is the actual playing out of an item being created or enchanted yes. and something like that. And I know that DCC and First Edition AD&D had allowances for that. Yeah, and DCC has an adventure called The Making of the Ghost Ring, which I haven't read yet, but I understand that it's an adventure where you as an adventuring party, like, on your adventure, wrap up the final steps of mm-hmm. making a, a magic item. You know, and I, I can understand, and I think DCC is always sort of off the off the sort of beaten path, so I think I'm sure that adventure plays out very effectively. I can understand why people might not want to sort of emphasize that and may, maybe in an actual at-the-table session, because maybe that's more for in-between sessions, unless you're playing sort of more of a uh, storytelling game mm-hmm. of, like, how something is created. But I think, again, that's really fascinating to have, like, the artifact being created somehow. Um, you know, maybe that's your in-between narrative, you sort of do your little exchanges, you know, over email or sure. whatever, you know, between sessions and say, okay, here's here's what's happened. And you sort of wrap up with the creation or the, the drawing of the, uh, you know, the quenching of the sword 
and it is your first scene in the yeah, game. Yeah, right? that's great. We are starting to run out of time. Do you guys have any kind of last thing that you want to get off your chest about the King of Elf? Oh, yeah, Andrew's like nodding his head. He's got like eight last things that he wants to share, but what, what, what is one of them? Jeff, you mentioned earlier um, that Zerundarel was, uh, she was favorable toward Alverick because uh, he did not kind of turn away from her when she showed her true form, her, mm. her withered old crone form. Um, and that comes very close on to the item creation scene. When I read that, I couldn't help but think of from uh, the, 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 the rule book where Joseph Goodman writes about how one might gain spell knowledge. And he has a list of maybe 20 really outlandish things that one must do to gain knowledge, to gain magical knowledge, which drive stories forward, which, which imbue magic in games with actual magic. Yeah. And I, I couldn't help but think you, you could add to that list gaze upon a, a, an elderly crone or frankly an elderly man depending on who is doing the gazing and their 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 desires um with genuine desire yeah and i felt like alverick fulfilled that that thing for zarundarel he unlocked that achievement he, he unlocked that achievement he gained access to magic that would otherwise never have happened and that that makes a magic item a spell something other than Oh, I gained a level. I got this spell. Yeah. You know, like, how are you going to get spells? And that, that turns um, the act of judging and creating a, a game and a campaign into what DCC RPG does, which is something that the, the players and the characters pull themselves through yeah. rather than having to be guided through by the effort and action of an external force that is the judge. Very cool. How about you, Hoy? Um, I would say definitely read this book, but I think be aware of that it is, um, it's not a heavy read, but you have to be in the mood for it, right? And so I think that don't try to do it like on the subway or, you know, just create some time for it and let it kind of wash over you. And then it's almost going to be like when you wake up out of a dream and you say, you try to try to crystallize the idea of like trying to remember the dream. I think this book is sort of like that. Like, how do we pull out these? We're pulling these ideas, I think, more out of this discussion than any conscious thought I had about after reading the book, you know, this morning. Sure, <laughs> sure. Know? So, um, cool. so I think there's that sort of, it's not quite dream logic, but it's, it's got that sort of, it's sort of accessing those levels of our brains. Yeah. If you read this book in the right state of mind, you, you may see off in the distance a silver line uh, approaching you. Right. You, may, you may hear songs from your childhood. You may experience some of that magic. Oh, and that was so Disney. That cracked me up, too. The silver line coming by and just magically changing the land. But, um, but yeah, so... Disney is so Dunsany. <laughs> that's also right, this is, actually seems uh, another step. Very Miyazaki, actually. I think a Miyazaki would be a perfect uh, person. Yeah, Studio Ghibli would be the perfect people to make this as a, into a film. I think you're right. Yeah, I can see a lot of um, Princess Mononoke here. Yeah. And also, visually, also a lot like... Um, who am I thinking? Maxfield Parrish. I don't know that is. He's the uh, painter who did the sort of like this, that sort of parish blue because it's always in a sort of state of perpetual twilight in the King okay. of Yeah, you know, so, um, so very. Um, I'll, I'll put a painting up on the, the show notes so you very get an cool. idea of what we're thinking about. Very cool. And uh, my final thought, um, I'm, I, I, I will say I we we, we, did, we never brought up Will of the Wisps in this episode, and I wish we'd spent some time chatting about them. But that's not my final thought. <laughs> my final thought is uh, there's a moment on uh, page 224 where the King of Elfland brings out this coffer that he has, and the coffer has the final rune. And it mentions that only he could open up the coffer with his spell, that no key on earth could open up this coffer. 
And it just got me thinking about like the roles of thieves in Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeon Crawl Classics. And like, it's very, it's cool that they can like open locks and, and find traps and all that stuff. But really, if you have the most powerful wizard around and he doesn't want you to get something, you're probably not gonna get to that without using magic. And that was just something that I thought was kind of neat in there that I thought I would like to think about if I'm gonna have a, a major uh, major antagonist be a big powerful wizard. Right, and you have to treat it as a puzzle or, I mean, obviously you have the knock spell on certain iterations of Dungeons and Dragons. Sure, um, but, but only yeah. magic will actually get you into that coffer. You're, you're, you can you can pick that lock as much as you want. Right. It's not gonna it's not gonna get it open. Right, right. And I think that's where you sort of do a compound. That's where you have the party, right? You have the thief maybe gathers the information that then lets the wizard figure out how to open this coffer. Yep. Cool, guys. Now we do have an email. We don't normally read emails on the show, but we have a really good one that we wanted to share, and it's from Todd Bunn over at Gateway Games. And Todd Bunn says, "Greetings." Let me start off by saying that in the short time that I've been listening, I've become a huge fan of your podcast, and, as I told Jeff, your complete reading list is my new shopping list. I do have a question for you regarding the oft-overlooked part of the Appendix N section. Gary, in the text of the Appendix, Gary mentions in passing several other influences on D&D, some of which are literary. Now, I wouldn't expect a book club to discuss the impact of Hammer and Harryhausen films on the game, uh, but, what are, but what about the books, including comics, that are mentioned in that text? After Vance and Pratt are de camp, uh, one could argue that Lee and Ditko's Doctor Strange was one of the leading influences on the D&D magic system. I seem to recall either Gary or Tim Cask mentioning that at one point, and I would uh, need to do some digging to confirm. I understand that comics might not fall within the scope of what you're trying to do, but I thought I would ask. I also realize that these things aren't a part of the official list, but the influences of Andrew Lang's collected folktales and the Brothers Grimm do seem quite apparent. I have copied and pasted the affirmation text from the appendix and below. Have you considered any of the titles encompassed by this listing for the inclusion in the podcast? And we'll include the, uh, the official language of that in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, this is a very uh, cool question. And Hoy, do you have any immediate thoughts on that? Um, I have many, 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 actually. But uh, starting with comics, yes, absolutely the Ditko run of Doctor Strange is worth reading. It's definitely, if you want to play in sort of outer plane games, astral projection, it's, it's definitely apropos. And I, and I did hear Tim, uh, Tim Cask saying about this. With regards to folktales and fairy tales, yes, they're very influential. The difficulty in the context of what we're trying to do is that um, there's not really usually a definitive text for folktales and fairy tales, right? I mean, the Andrew Lang collections are quite good. So, and Brothers Grimm, but there's at least three or four major translations. They're not structurally, I think, particularly useful in terms of near, uh, creating an adventure, but they are useful in terms of creating magic items, creatures, challenges within them. Um, so I think that it would be worth investigating, but it's a little difficult in this context of what we're doing. Yeah, and I would say that um, I, I agree with everything that you've said there. I think it would be really easy to open up this project and have it include comic books and folk tales and mythology and fairy tales and movies and TV shows. There's so many things that you can bring in and that both inspire the creation of the original game and can and, and, can and do inspire us today. And for the purpose of this podcast, I really wanted to stay very much focused just on the list of the, the books and authors that were in the Appendix N with a couple of extra credit things here and there. And the folktale fairy tale stuff is very interesting, as would be reading Greek mythology and Norse mythology and Egyptian mythology. Um, I do think it is outside the scope of what it is that we're specifically trying to accomplish here, but it's certainly worthwhile to, to, to check out. We're not uh, in any way dismissing this. It's just sort of a little bit outside of the 
mainstream of this project is what I want to say. All right. Very cool. Great. So we are out of time. So thank you so much, Andrew, for being on the show. It's been awesome having you here. Thanks, guys. And coming up next, we'll be reading Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidar on episode 27. And episode 28 is going to be Robert E. Howard's Conan the Freebooter. And uh, yeah, it's been awesome. It's been awesome doing this, guys. Okay. See you in the sacks. Read on. The library is closed! <laughs>